Let's pray as we begin our time. Father, thank you again for this opportunity to be together. Thank you that we can study your word together. Lord, that we do not have to be in hiding. That we do not have to fear. We can worship you with glad hearts, grateful hearts. And Lord, we understand our dependence upon you for all things in every day, in every part of our life, and particularly in our understanding of your word. For you are God and we are not. And so we pray that you would help us to understand and to <clears throat> to come to an understanding of what your word means by what it says, that we might think out in our own lives in detail the implications of the truth. Thereby we can begin to put it into practice in our own hearts, minds, lives, and reflect the great wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around us. So use this time, we pray, for your glory, our good, and the greatness of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn in them to Revelation chapter 2. We are returning there once again this morning and continuing our series on when the church embraces apostasy. We've been speaking about this whole issue of apostasy over the last several months as we have studied through the book of Jude and Jude's desire to have each and every one of us as Christians contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He's speaking about the truth, the Word of God, to contend for it, to fight for it, to have that that outworking of exercised uh, desire and willingness to stand for the truth, even if that means suffering in light of the truth. And we remember from our study last Lord's Day, if you were with us, that in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the exiled apostle John is writing about the things that are. Things that are current things. That is simply to say that he's writing about the here and the now. What is going on? The last days, if you will. That period of time from which Christ rose from the dead and until He returns again. That is the time that we are in. These are times that are known as the last days, or as John says, the things that are, or even as we might have known them in our own mind, the church age. We are in the church age. We are currently in the time of the church it wasn't always the time of the church in the history of our world, in the history of since God began creation. Before the first century beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost, it was the time of God in which He was dealing primarily with those of the Jewish nation. Throughout the Old Testament and all the way up to the time of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God was working His redemptive plan primarily with the Jews. He was drawing them to Himself. 
primarily. There was a smattering of Gentiles who were being saved in that process. We certainly know of some of those, even through the Old Testament writings, as there are Gentiles who are saved. But the majority were Jews, and the majority of them, as God was drawing them to Himself, the majority were rejecting His gift. They rejected His Son, Jesus Christ. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected the salvation, the only salvation that could be obtained through faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, through their rejection, as Romans 9-11 through clearly shows us, many of the Gentiles, those who are non-Jews by heritage, and that means most of all of us, we have no Jewish heritage, we are Gentiles. We are not Jews. That's the idea. And therefore, because of their rejection, we were grafted in to the redemptive plan of God. And so, for a time, God has set aside His redemptive work with the Jews so that He might bring in to His kingdom all the Gentiles that He is saving through Jesus Christ. We are primarily now in the church age in the time of the Gentiles. You might hear those titles thrown around in books you read or by other people who preach and teach. But there is coming a time, there is coming a future day when God will, in fact, resume His plan again with the Jewish people. The Jews are not set aside forever. God will indeed resume His plan with them, and that will happen at the beginning of the Great Tribulation after the church is snatched away to be with Christ. But for now... For now, until the rapture of the church, until the the snatching away, we are in this time, the time of the church. And in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, John is commanded by Christ to write about the things that are, the things that are. And so he's writing to the church. And of course, we understand that that isn't the first time that that Christ has given instruction to the church. In other words, when you read about it in Revelation, we understand that's not the first time that, that we hear words from God to the church. The entire New Testament, or much of the entire New Testament, is directed at the church at large. The epistles are written to the church. And so it is written for our instruction. Written to the church, and we find... Interestingly enough, you find that one primary issue on the heart of God as He begins to address the church, even before the day of Pentecost when the church began, right? The church is the ecclesia, the called out ones, the chosen as Jude calls them, the chosen as First Peter and Second Peter calls them as we studied those before Jude. This is the church. It's not the building that we're sitting in here. It's not a building up in the center of town. That's not a church. A church is people. The people are the church, the called out ones, the ecclesia, as it says in the original language. So it is first mentioned in the New Testament, by the way, back in Matthew chapter 18 in the Gospels. And that's why I read that for us this morning. I want to go back to that just for a moment as we begin our time. Because it's important to see this as we think about this idea of apostasy's effect upon the church. Matthew chapter 18, of course, 
Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's speaking about the kingdom of heaven and all of these ways. And he speaks about the issue that he needs to deal with when it comes to you and I in the church. And you notice in verse 3, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. That is simply just to say that it takes faith in order to be part of the kingdom. right? You're not going to get saved by your works. You're not going to get saved by any other means. It is by faith. Children come. Children believe without any pretense. Children believe their parents, what their parents say, because they're their parents. They, they just come as a child. It's a, it's a childlike faith, and that's what Jesus means here. He doesn't say you need to be a child. He says you need to become like children in that same kind of way who are humble, right? Whoever then, verse 4, humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such a child in my name receives me. But notice verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it's far better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now you get this principle there that it is a very heinous thing in the eyes of God to be one who introduces others to ways of sinfulness. That's, that's the point. That's the principle. That's the idea. So if you, if you cause someone else to go down the road of stumbling, God doesn't see that very in very good colors, if you will. He says, woe to the world, verse 7, because of its stumbling blocks. The world is a place in which sin is rampantly promoted and put out there and, and desired for everyone to just participate in. You read Romans 1 and you clearly get that idea in verse 18 and following. So woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. In other words, the world is filled with that. You're not going to avoid that sinful reality around you. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling blocks come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, then cut it off, throw it away from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled and lame than having two hands or feet and be cast into eternal fire. He's not saying go out and cut your hands off. Some, some places do that, frankly, because they think that in some kind of asceticism, some kind of personal damage to your own self, you somehow attain righteousness. And they base it on this verse here. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's just saying the reality is sin of sin is very serious, and you don't want to, you want to deal with it. You want to deal with it in such a way that it's almost like radical surgery. Because if you don't, Listen, you're on your way to hell itself. It's better to get rid of those things in your life than to enter into eternity thinking that you're free when you're not free. And so verse 10, he comes down and he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of the Father who is in heaven, for the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. And then he shows how precious that is to the reality of God, how precious it is for one sinner to come to know him. What do you think? 
If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that's straying? And if he turns out that he finds it, it and he says to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine who have not gone astray. Thus it's not the will of your Father. Thus it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Right? They have a relation to Christ, a relation to the Father, a relation to the holy angels. And all of this, all of the reality, and when you continue down to the section that I read this morning, particularly verses 15 to 17, you realize that what Jesus is dealing with, and the idea in Jesus' mind and art, is the idea of purity. Purity. Purity in every area. Purity in the church. That's the number one issue being highlighted by Christ here. It's purity in the church. That the church is not a polluted place. That's why he goes into the issue of sinfulness and dealing with one another concerning sin in verses 15 through 17. It's about purity. We are not to be polluted. We are not to be a polluted people. A polluted church where sinful pride is, is the accepted thing. So this is the primary issue on the heart of God for the church that the church be a pure place. In fact, if we were to turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, you don't have to turn there right now, but in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 24 to 27, the church is the subject there, and it's the church being subject to Christ. And in verse 26, it says that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her, speaking of the church, by the washing of water with the Word, who's the He? Christ. That Christ might cleanse her. That Christ might purify her. That He might present to Himself, verse 27 says, the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. The issue is purity. Purity for the body of Christ. Purity for the church. Purity in the church. Purity with the church. The church is to be pure. So Christ desires and Christ will have nothing less than a pure bride. A pure church. And by pure, we mean at the very least that those who are of the church, first of all, are true believers in Christ. The church is not a place to be filled with those who do not know Christ. Certainly, unbelievers can be and from time to time are in the church hearing of Jesus Christ. And yet the church, those, the true church, is those who are believers, true believers. It is not unbelievers. And so by pure, Jesus certainly means that. And he means also that those who are of the church are obedient. And in their obedience, that is a reflection of his own obedience to his own father. And that becomes a, an, an outworking of testimony to the world around us. When we are obedient to Christ, we reflect the very nature and life of obedience and glory of Christ to the world. And so by pure, he means that they're true believers, that they are obedient believers, and also that those who are of the church are therefore then vigilant for and also proactive in dealing with sin in the church. That's where you get to that place in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to 17. We are 
not only proactive, but we are also vigilant for this issue of sin in the church. And so this then is the primary reason for going to one another over sin issues. We go to one another not because not because somebody might have done something against me sinfully. I don't go to someone with that as my primary focus. I go to them because in their sinning against me, there's an obvious relationship issue between them and the Lord. And that causes an impurity within the church. So it is for purity in one's life and purity in the life of the church that we go to one another when sin issues take place. And this brings us to our study on this issue of apostasy affecting the church. Because where apostasy is embraced in the church, where falseness is embraced in the church in subtle ways and in grand ways, you find an impure church. An impure church. And this, beloved, was the problem with the church in Thyatira. We're in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. This is the problem with the church in Thyatira. Ephesus, you remember, was the church that allowed its devotion to Christ to devolve and become just duty for Christ. In other words, it was a driven activity that had no real devotion in it. They had become active, but no longer out of a love for Christ. Smyrna, on the other hand, was a severely persecuted church, and they were continuing to be faithful. As you read through Revelation chapter 2, they were faithful to the end, and Christ had no word of condemnation for the church in Smyrna. And then, of course, remember the effect of apostasy in Pergamum was that the church became a church where truth was compromised. They were those in the church, or there were those in the church, who taught that compromise was the way to reach the world. That you compromised in your own living, in your own life, and you you could reach the world that way. Jesus said in verse 14, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam and who, keep te- who kept teaching that Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. And what was the stumbling block? To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. That was the ultimate end. But the stumbling block was that they would intermarry with those who they shouldn't have intermarried with. It was an unequally yoked issue that God didn't want that because of the purity issue within the nation. It had nothing to do with an ethnic hatred of some set of people. It was all about God desiring a purity within His people. But Balak, who was the Moabite king, didn't want that. And so he wanted... Balaam to prophesy against Israel so that they would be cursed by God, and yet he refused to do that. God kept him from doing that, but there was something in Balaam, a sense of greed, because they were going to pay him to do that, that he found another way around, and he introduced them to the women 
of the Moabites, and the Moabites began to infiltrate Israel and led them away to eating things sacrificed to idols. And that doesn't mean that those things necessarily, like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, that meat sacrificed to idols is nothing because idols are nothing. No, he's talking about worship. They, they led them off into the worship of those idols, worship away from God and into sexual immorality, which God abhors. They infiltrated them in such a way that they began to draw their hearts away from God to other gods. That was the problem in Pergamum. It was compromise of the truth, and because of that compromise, the church became impure. And now we need to look into Thyatira, because Thyatira is the church of tolerance. The church of Tolerance. The effect of apostasy in Thyatira was that the church was refusing to confront sin. They were refusing to confront sin. So let me read this for us, in, beginning in verse 18, and I'll read down through 29, and I'll just tell you ahead of time, this is going to be a two-parter. The angel of the church in Thyatira write this, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and His feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, to the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." It's interesting, isn't it, as you read through chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation and you read through these letters to the church that you find that the letter to Thyatira is longer than any of the others. Jesus Christ had more to say to them than to any other church. Now Thyatira geographically was located about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. We understand that Pergamum was a city of a university city and it had a lot of intellectualism there. But, per, but Thyatira was different. Thyatira was primarily an agricultural area. That had, it had been founded by the Greeks shortly after Alexander the Great died. Alexander the Great, upon his death, had 
given portions of his great kingdom to some of his generals. And one of those generals was Seleucus, who was the founder of Thyatira. And Thyatira was named that because his daughter was named Thyatira. So he named the city after his daughter. And it became, therefore, then a Roman colony around 190 B.C. when the Romans overtook the entire empire. And so, like Pergamum, they had embraced the worship of a whole lot of Greek gods and even the state religion of Caesar worship. But it seemed, at least at least on the initial reading, when you read verses 18 and 19, it seems as if those outside religions didn't really have a great threat to the church. Uh, the issue was within the church, and it was this issue of purity. It was the issue of dealing with sin, not not sin that was rampant outside the church, but dealing with sin that was in the church. Now notice that Christ sets himself here apart from any of the Greek gods that they might have worshipped, and he does it in three distinct ways. You notice verse 18 The angel of the church in Thyatira write this, the Son of God who has eyes like flaming fire and His feet are like burnished bronze. These are the ways in which Christ sets Himself apart from all the others that are around Him. First, it says He is the Son of God. Now that's a direct statement of contrast, if you will, from all the other things that were worshipped as gods in Thyatira. He is the Son of God. They worshipped, in fact, in Thyatira, the S-U-N God, the Son God. And His name was Triminus, or Tyriminus, I guess it is. And and people were amazed at the, the brilliance of this false God who was their Son God, S-U-N God. But Christ here reveals Himself as the Son of God, the S-O-N of God. This isn't just who He is. This is a declaration of His very character and nature. He is a deity, an actual living deity. This is the one who is God Himself. He is the omnipotent God alone. And then He says, secondly, whose eyes, who has eyes like a flame of fire. He's writing to the church. You know, what is he saying to the church? God's speaking to you, and it is the God whose eyes evaluate everything. His eyes consume it all. This is the one who's bringing judgment upon you, the very one who sees everything. There's nothing who escapes. You put a fire on anything, it will consume whatever it is on. That's the idea. So this is in some ways, a very sobering reminder to us, isn't it? Listen, you're sitting here this morning. I'm here this morning. We've gone through our details and our activities and our things just to get here this morning, and God was watching every second. God was there. God was seeing it. God was watching it. God was involved. Sobering. God cannot be deceived. He cannot be duped. Everything He is searching out, and it serves really as a warning to us that Christ is omniscient. He knows everything. We yell at our 
wives. We speak to our kids in a harsh tone. We hurl insults at the driver in front of us who just cut us off. God hears it. God knows it. God sees it. He's right there. He is the omniscient one. So he is the son of God. He is the all-seeing God. And the third way he distinguishes himself, he says his feet are like burnished bronze. In other words, he's highly pure. Highly purified. That's, that's the idea. Burnished bronze was a highly purified metal. It shined as if the metal was still in a molten state. I remember when I was in the military in basic training, we used to have to shine the brass doorknobs on the lockers that we had. And we used to use this product called Brasso that, that shined them up. I mean, it did a great job. And we thought, wow, those things look really great. They were dull in comparison to burnished bronze. This is the highest of purities. And so purity is the idea. Purity in Christ. And therefore there needs to be purity within the body, within the church. He is holy, therefore we are to be holy, as Peter says in 1 Peter. So he is omniscient, he is omnipotent, he is omnipresent sees everything, hears everything, he is everywhere. And as God, his eyes discern and his righteousness purifies. And the all-seeing eyes of Christ then commends this church in Thyatira, just like he did with Pergamum. Verse 19, he says, I know your deeds. I know your love, faith, service, perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. He says, I know your deeds. I'm omniscient. I I know everything you do. I, I know what you do. I know when you do it. I know why you do it. I know how you carry out your service. I know how many songs you sing. I know how many times you pray. I know how many times you want to pray and how many times you don't want to pray. I know how your Sunday school classes go. I know how your nursery workers are doing right now. I know all of these things. I know your deeds. I know the activity of every person everywhere all the time. And most importantly, I know them with undiminished vision. Undiminished vision. Nothing escapes my watchful, scrutinizing eye. I think sometimes we convince ourselves, wrongly so, that it would be better And we'd be better off if we had someone, just someone humanly watching over us, right? We say this sometimes when it comes to accountability. I just need some accountability, right? And there's some truth to that. We need to iron, sharpen iron. We need to be in each other's lives. God has designed growth that way. And yet sometimes we convince ourselves that without that, we cannot grow. And God is reminding us that no matter where we are, no matter what it is we are doing, no matter what it is we are saying, we are thinking, He's there. He knows everything. We cannot escape. When we think we're unprotected, we are still being protected. When we think we are unsafe, we are still as safe as we could ever be. We do not trust in horses and men. We trust in the Lord our God. And so for those in Thyatira, Christ lists four characteristics about them. He says, I know your deeds... And here are your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, and your perseverance. 
perseverance. So by way of commendation to this church, which is actually a commendation to the people, right? The people are the church. It's not just this building. He's talking about them personally. He's even talking about individually since they are the church. Christ identifies these characteristics about them. I know your love, he says, first of all. I know your love. That means you're demonstrating what love is. You're demonstrating true love. You're demonstrating agape love to one another, the personal sacrificial love that flows from true love. I see that. Christ says, listen, I see you're sacrificing for each other. You're sacrificing for one another. If you are disciples of mine, Jesus said, then exercise this, right? A willingness to lay down your life for others. He says, I see that. This is what the church is doing for each other. And he says, look, I I know your faith. I know your faith. Your faithfulness, you might read it that way. And I said, well, in other words, you're not giving up on following me. You're sacrificing for one another and you're continuing to follow me, even though the times are tough, even though being a Christian in the world in which you live in and the circumstances that are surrounding you and the times that you live in, even though all of that is going on, even though it's difficult, you still follow me. Even though you live under a government that clearly stands against Christian principles, You remain faithful. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Love one another. You're faithful. Continuing to to call out truth. Christ says, I know that about you. And then he says, thirdly, I know your service. I know your service. Service, uh, that's the word where we get the name deacon. I know you're deaconing. Christ says, I'm intimately, I intimately know all things you do to serve other people. I know what you do. I know that you're meeting needs. I see you using your spiritual gifts among one another. I, I know that you're servants in the ministry of the church. And then he says, I know your perseverance. I know your service and perseverance. You're enduring. You've been continuing through hostility. You've been continuing through persecution. You've been continuing through difficulty and ailments and struggles and emotional pain and and all the things that life brings. And all of that is commendable. I mean, think about it. Here we are sitting here this morning, Fellowship Bible Church. Wouldn't it be great if someone from, from some heavenly body came and gave us a letter and said, read this to the church and this is what it said? I mean, I know who you are. I know your deeds. I know you love one another. You have faithfulness. You serve. You're persevering. Oh, man, we feel pretty good. Yo, man, I'm so glad I came to this church. What a great church. And notice, in the verse 19, he says, listen, you're a great church. And on top of all that, your deeds of late are greater than at first. I mean, they're, they're almost the opposite of Ephesus, right? Ephesus forgot their first love. But he says, listen, you, you've grown in what you're doing. You're increasing. You're doing more now than you ever did when you began. I mean, you, you've gone on this path 
I've watched you begin. I've, I've watched you now. You're progressing. You're doing now. Is a, what you're doing is an increase of what you did at first. He says, listen, your deeds are a demonstration of your love, your faithfulness, your service, your perseverance, and, and all of that is increasing. Man, we'd love it if it just stopped there. All right, let's just cover up the rest of those these chat verses. Because man, that would be a wonderful church to be a part of. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 20, you actually get to the main point. But I have this against you. I have this against you. Listen. Listen, beloved, it's great to have God say good things about us. That's so wonderful. I love it, man. Somebody describes our church like verse 19. I love that. But none of that really matters if Christ says that he has something against us. None of that really matters. I mean, put yourself in one of the proverbial seats in the Thyatiran church. This letter's being read. You hear these words. You're in a church that names the name of Christ. Ah, yeah. I, I found the good church. You're in a church that fully identifies itself with Christ himself. Man, I'm so glad we have that. You're part of a church that stands strong on biblical principle. We love the Word of God. You're part of a church that works at serving one another. Oh, man, isn't it great? We serve. In fact, you're in a church that actually thinks highly of the gospel and goes out and shares the gospel with the outside world, and when the world pushes back, you still stay faithful. Man, you're in a church that's known for being Bible-believing, Christ-following, Bible-preaching. Sounds like I just described our church, doesn't it? That's our church. You even work to obey Christ when it costs you personally. And yet, as you're sitting there in the Thyatiran church, the guy goes, I'm not finished. Christ needs to say this, but I have this against you. Really? Really? I mean, we're on list of good churches in the area. I mean, people say, I, I want to find a good church. People tell people about our church. I mean, what are, what are you talking about? You have something against us. What could the Lord possibly have against us? I have this against you, he says. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Wow. You have this woman who teaches people to go astray, he says. And here's the crux. You allow it to go on. It's not the sin happens in the church. That happens. But you allow it to go on. You tolerate her. You don't deal with the issue. This, beloved, is the effect of apostasy. 
This is an effect of apostasy when it's embraced in the church. This is the condemnation of Christ on them in saying, you don't deal with sin. You're not dealing with the sin of this woman and it is affecting the church. You know what Christ is saying? In essence, he's simply saying, you tolerate impurity in the church. You tolerate impurity in the church. And by accommodating impurity in the church, by way of your tolerance, you are an accessory to the sin. You're an accessory to the sin. Paul said it this way to the Corinthians, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Some of you bakers go, I know what that means. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, if sin isn't dealt with in the body, if sin isn't dealt with in the church, the whole body becomes infected. God is extremely concerned with purity in His body. And the church in Thyatira, as good of a church as it was, was tolerating the sin of this highly influential woman in the church. And notice she's described here with her name or with the name that you don't ever want to be called. Right? I mean, back in the 50s, they used to call ladies of the evening this. She's just a Jezebel. You don't want to be called that. But it helps us understand what she was. That's not her given name, I don't believe. I don't think that's what John was saying, that this woman's name was Jezebel. That's why it's not said here, you tolerate the woman who's named Jezebel. No, you tolerate the woman Jezebel. It's describing what she's like. You remember who Jezebel was? Jezebel was a woman in the Old Testament who led the people of Israel to do what? Commit sexual sin and worship idols. She was the wife of Ahab who was one of the kings of Israel at the time, and she was not a Hebrew. Therefore, Ahab had intermixed the Gentiles once again with the people of Israel through his wife, who wasn't a Hebrew, who knew not God, who did not want to have things to do with God. And he, or she, brought with her into that marriage the worship of all kinds of gods, all kinds of idolatrous relationships. And she had even had the prophets of God killed Remember, you read about Elijah who went to Mount Carmel to have a face-off with the 450 prophets of Baal. And yet, even after Elijah had such victory, God had given him victory in that reality, he still feared Jezebel because she threatened to kill him. And so what John is recording for us here in Revelation 2 is this woman in Thyatira who had that kind of character. She had that kind of character. Listen, I'll just speak to the young, young people for a moment or those who are single. Listen, you do not want to have a marriage that's unequally yoked. There are examples after example after example throughout the Old Testament with Israel, let alone the fact that God says don't be unequally yoked that show why you shouldn't be unequally yoked. They're going to draw your heart away from the things of Christ. It's inevitable. Don't be unequally yoked. And so John is writing here about this woman and her character within the church. And Christ identifies her as Jezebel because she acted the same way in the church, just like Jezebel acted in the nation of Israel. 
She led followers away from Christ to commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. She said, don't have anything to do with God, have things to do with my gods. And again, this is just like in Pergamum, right? The compromise of truth leads down the pathway to this very reality, the toleration of sin. In Pergamum, they were compromising their Christian walk, allowing the world to creep into church because out of their own sinfulness, they thought they could reach the world that way. Just like Balaam. And here it's even worse. Here it's even worse, if we could even talk of it that way, but this is where compromise goes when it isn't dealt with. In fact, notice notice. When you read, you notice the tone. The tone of Christ's condemnation is almost one of surprise. It's almost like, I can't believe you have this among you in light of the fact of what I said about you in verse 19. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. Some of your translations may say, allow, allow. The original word is translated in other places. You you might be surprised to know this. It's translated in other places as forgive. Forgive. And I, I don't want us to be confused by the idea because Christ isn't condemning them for having a forgiving attitude. He's not saying, listen, I have this against you. You've forgiven Jezebel. You've forgiven this prophetess who was leading people, is leading people astray. No, he's condemning them, listen, for redefining forgiveness as tolerance of sin. Oh, I just, oh, brother, I forgive you, but you, you really didn't forgive anybody. You just swept it under the rug, never dealt with it. That's not forgiveness. That's tolerance. Listen, they needed to deal with her in the same way that Paul exhorted the Corinthian church to deal with the the man who was sleeping with his father's wife. The incestuous relationship that was going on in the Corinthian church, and they were proud that they they were so kind and so tolerant of this and allowing this. They're just being patient and letting, oh, listen, grace needs to abound. Listen, if they don't repent of their sin, then they were not to be welcomed into the fellowship of the church. In verse 21, here in Revelation 2, Shows the patience of God for repentance. I gave her time to repent. I've oftentimes had individuals come when we're walking through the process of Matthew 18 and a specific individual or issue that's going on in someone's life and they're unwilling to repent. People oftentimes will say, well, yeah, it's moving pretty quick. Pretty quick. And of course, We've waited a long time. Grace has gone on and on for months and months and months. And I always oftentimes will ask, well, how long would you want us to wait if it was you? Would you like us to move a little quicker? Move a little slower? You see, it's repentance is the issue, and God has a patience for that. He gave her time to repent of the sin. But because the church didn't go all the way, the church didn't walk all the way through what Matthew 18 says, because of tolerance, now many are being led astray. Many are being caused to stumble. This is very serious. 
Very serious. How serious? We'll go back to Matthew 18 for a moment. How serious was it? We looked at it before. Verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. So now we're, we're, we're causing believers to be caught up in some kind of sinfulness. It's better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's God. God's saying, listen, it's better off. They're better off dead. Than continuing to go that road, being being the person that is the catalyst for other Christians to sin, listen, is so evil in God's eyes that it would be better for you to just be gone off the scene. That's serious. Can't get any more serious than that. You say, why do you say that? Because God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the Bible tells us. So it's got to be pretty serious. This is why purity of life is so serious in the church. This is why those who tonight will come forward and, 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 and go into the waters of baptism, it's, it's not just this moment in time whereby it's a, a nonchalant thing. No, it's a very serious reality. It's serious before them. They're taking seriously the issue in their own life, in their own heart, in their own profession of faith before God, and they're saying, listen, hold me accountable to this. I don't want to be a stumbling block to anybody. This is what makes our Christian walk so serious. Because the potential for leading others astray is so, so heinous. One of us better make sure that we are living right, each one of us, before God. We better make sure that we we know what God requires of us and that we're carrying that out before those who are in the family of God. Better make sure we're living according to how God commands us to live in Scripture so we're not causing someone else to stumble. So in the church, we have to deal with sin, beloved. We have to deal with the things of sin. We have to deal with the issues of sin. We have to deal with those things that come up. And listen, one of the best acts of love from one Christian to another is not to tolerate sin. They say, well, I don't want to go to them. You know, I want to love them. This is just an act of brotherly love. I mean, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So, you know, I just, doesn't, doesn't love cover a multitude of sins? I mean, doesn't it take care of that? Yeah, true love does. Why? Because when you go out of true love and you deal with the issues of sin in someone's life out of humility, knowing you could be caught in the same trespass, it's not about you and them anymore. It's about your concern for them and God and the reality of the stumbling block before yourself and others. It's about purity in the church. Jesus said, if you love me, He'll keep my commandments. God desires a pure people. Why? Because His body is to be a pure body. The church in Thyatira was struggling with that 
man, it was a great church. Man, you'd, you'd look it up on the ancient internet and you'd go, man, I'm looking for a good church. Well, you better go to Thyatira. Stay away from Pergamum. They're, they're compromising. Those people are just a bunch of liberals. They're compromising in that church. Yeah, there's some good things there, but, but yeah, I wouldn't go there because they think you can be like the world. They're, you know, they got the big band on stage and all this kind of bang stuff. The lights are going, everything else. Stay away from that church. They're compromising the truth. But go to Thyatira, man. Thyatira is a great church. I mean, they have love. They have deeds that are faithful. They're serving. They're persevering. In fact, they're even increasing. They're growing. They're sharing the gospel. I mean, go to that church. Yeah, go to that church. They tolerate sin. They tolerate sin. Thyatira was a good church, but there was this influential apostasy that was leading others astray. We don't know what she was saying. We don't know the things that she was prophesying about, what she was even she was even a real prophetess. She called herself a prophetess. She stood up and said, Hey, God has spoken to me in some kind of way. But she was leading those who were true astray. Listen, this is a sure sign of a false believer because no one who is a true believer would lead anyone into things other than the scriptural truth, other than into what is biblical and true, not into committing acts of immorality and into uh, eating things that God would never, that would show worship to anything other than God. She wasn't even a believer. Somehow she had gotten to the place where she's teaching in this church and she's not even a believer. I mean, it makes you wonder sometimes in your head as you look at it through your own eyes, how could, how could Christ even say, verse 19, when all that's going on under the surface? Oh, the patience and grace of God. Here's this woman in the church. They're not dealing with it. He refuses even to repent. So apparently... Apparently, there were some in the church who went to her. Apparently, there were some who who challenged her on whatever issues it was. Because it says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, and she doesn't want to repent. In other words, that's Matthew 18, right? You send a brother or sister, you go to your brother or sister who sinned, and you, you deal with the issue, and they refuse to repent, then you escalate it, right? You take a couple others in order that they might see and watch the interaction, see the confrontation going on, and see whether it's true, because there may have been repentance, and the other person may not have reported it correctly. So the issue isn't, hey, they witnessed what went on in the first place. The original sin, no, they're, they're, they're witnessing this interaction to ensure there's repentance or no repentance. And if there's no repentance, then you tell it to the church. So obviously there was, there was something going on here where someone was interacting with this person and telling them someone was trying to be faithful to the purity in the church. And God is saying, I gave her time to repent. I've been gracious on this issue. And it comes a time when God says enough is enough. She doesn't want to repent. She doesn't want to repent. Well, the obvious reason she doesn't want to repent is because she doesn't know him. Right? She's leading people in ways that are false. Most of the church tolerated it. They left it alone. 
They wouldn't go there. Oh, that's for the leaders. Oh, that's for the deacons to do. Ah, oh, that's for somebody else. You know, I, I just don't know about enough about the Bible in order to do that. It's infecting the whole church. How is it infecting the church? Well, I, I don't know specifically, but potentially there's a little pocket of people over here that have gathered together under the same little guise, and they're, they're doing their own little thing, and it's, and it's creating a stir over here. And then there's these people over here who, who look at other people with disdain in their own eyes, and they're, they're looking down at people and thinking that they're acting in a loving way when they're actually not acting in a loving way. There's all these little factions going on. Cracks are starting to go. And this church is in the, in the place where, yeah, it's a great church, at least if you look at it on the surface. But you, now you see all the cracks under the fine line of Christ's scrutinizing eye. Man, this thing is close to being just falling apart. A little leaven is leaven the whole lump. People are doing the same things. And maybe they were even going to the same kind of realities that their friends up in Pergamum a few 30, 40 miles away were doing. Christ is going to deal with it. Christ is going to deal with it. How? How does he deal with it? How does he deal with it? You have to come back next time. We're out of time. I told you this is a two-part series. Got to come back next time. He's going to deal with it. Verse 22 through 29 tells us just how he deals with it. Well, let's uh, thank the Lord for what we've learned today and pray that we can apply it in our lives. Lord, we thank you. You're a great God. So gracious to us. So merciful. So kind. So kind that you would even give us your word that we could diagnose even now issues in our own heart, issues in our own mind. Lord, you are a gracious God. You forgive. You do forgive. But you forgive at great cost. You don't overlook sin. You always deal with it. And you deal with it at the cost of your own self. Lord, you have called us to know less, to deal with sin, even if it costs us things. We trust you in the end. We just desire to be pure in our own life. Help us do that. Lord, when those temptations and struggles and thoughts in our minds conjure up the desires of the flesh and we want to go in one direction, Lord, help us recall what your word tells us. Help us to fear you more than anything else. That we would walk in obedience to you and not cause anyone else to stumble. Lord, thank you for your graciousness, your mercy. Thank you that we stand in your eyes in Christ alone and not in our own deeds. For if we were in our own deeds, we surely would be consumed. And so thank you for that. Lord, thank you for protecting us, not only individually, but as a church. Lord, help us to remember these things and to apply them in our personal life as well as in our corporate life together. And we'll give you all the praise because you deserve it. We deserve none. We're just servants. That's it. Doing what we've been asked. So Lord, use us for your great glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tim's going to come up. We're going to sing, and then we're going to welcome new members into the church. So.